This is Jeffrey Kerr. I'm here today with Louis J. Stadlin, who is currently starring as Horace Vandergelder in the national tour of Hello, Dolly, opposite Broadway legend Betsy Bugley as the titular meddling matchmaker herself. Hello, Louis. Hello there. Uh, Lewis's previous Broadway credits include Minnie's Boys, The Sunshine Boys, The Odd Couple, The Producers, The People in the Picture, The Nance, Fish in the Dark, and most recently, The Front Page. He's also earned two Tony nominations for his performances in the 1974 revival of Candide and the 1996 revival of A Funny Thing Happens on the Way to the Form. On the big screen, Lewis has been seen in 1973's Serpico and 1982's The Verdict, both for director Sidney Lumet, 1983 to Be or Not to Be, starring Mel Brooks and Anne Bancroft, and 1997's In and Out, starring Kevin Klein. On the small screen, he was a regular on the first season of the ABC sitcom Benson as John Taylor, and had recurring roles as Dr. Ira Freed on the HBO series The Sopranos, as well as Ralph Macias on the NBC series Smash. So, to start things off, how's your journey been so far with the Hello Dolly tour? Well, I love it, and I love, uh, I love touring. My first job was in 1957. I was 19 years old. I played Mendel the rabbi's son in the first uh, national company of Fiddler on the Roof. And it was really the first time I felt successful about myself. So touring has always had uh, an allure. Uh, this is uh, Hello, Dolly! is a wonderful production. Betty Buckley is, is just wonderful as Dolly Levi. Uh, it's a musical that I think uh, the United States needs right now. It's about love and the best side of human humankind and uh it's a pleasure to you know bring it to audiences uh, all over the country well yeah i was going to ask you how has it been working with the great betty buckley she, she's a wonderful actress she's very funny and uh, i think that she uh, brings a humanity to the role that probably hasn't been seen before I think it's the first production people have been telling me in which they really believe that Dolly Levi and Horace Vandegelder are in love with each other by the end of the play, <laughs> which isn't easy. Oh. Well, well, yes, and I understand you've also played this role, Horace Vandegelder, before. I have, yes. I first played it, oh God, I, it must be about 20, 25 years ago. I was a little young for it then, but I did, the, I did it in The Matchmaker which is the uh, Thornton Wilder play in which uh, Hello, Dolly! is based. Right. And I did it with Andrea Martin at Williamstown. Oh. So that's the first time that I uh, I began to figure out who this complicated person, Horace Vandegelder, is. Well, yeah, and, you know, I, and I guess imagine Andrea Martin taking on the role of Dolly Levi in the musical. Yes, I think she'd be terrific, mm -hmm. you know. And have you played the role again since before here? Yes, yes, I have. Uh, I played it with Randy Graff at the Muni. That's the first time I did Hello, Dolly. And I did it in Houston with Leslie Uggams. And then I did it in Florida with uh, Leroy Reams playing huh. Dolly Levi in drag. And mm -hmm. he was absolutely wonderful. And Leroy was one of the first Cornelius Cornelius's uh, uh, and had directed many productions of Hello, Dolly, uh, starring the great uh, Carol Channing. Well, yes, we'll be talking a little bit more about her later on, but now for this production, an additional number was added for your character to sing at the top of Act 2, titled Penny in My Pocket, which was originally cut from the show, and what is it like for you getting to perform it? You know, when I saw it on Broadway, I didn't particularly like it. I thought it was kind of invasive to the plot. 
Uh, I truly love doing it. It, it kind of showcases uh, Horace at his most masculine. And then, of course, the joke is after he explains uh, the reason why he is the way he is, uh, he's immediately humiliated uh, by uh, a woman that has been sent to uh, disrupt his life by Dolly Levi. It's a wonderful song. I get a chance to do it right in front of the curtain. Uh, and I think it very much enhances the character of Van de Gelder and the audience gets to know a lot more about him and his motivations for being who he is. Oh, yes. And uh, tell us about your director, Jerry Zachs. You've worked with him several times before on Guys and Dolls, Laughter on the 23rd Floor, A Funny Thing Happens All the Way to the Forum, Epic Proportions, The Man Who Came to Dinner, and 45 Seconds from Broadway. He's currently working on a stage musical adaptation of Mrs. Doubtfire and will next year be directing a Broadway revival of The Music Man with Hugh Jackman and Sutton Foster. What is he like to work with? Well, he has perfect comic pitch. You know, I always, uh, pretty much the way the cards are dealt in a career, I have been uh, known as a comic actor. Uh, and Jerry taught me some very important things when I first worked with him in the National Company of Guys and Dolls in 1992. He's just somebody who has enormous respect when he directs a revival of a play for uh, the production that has come before us. Uh, in, in terms of Hello, Dolly, one of the wonderful things about this production is it's deeply respectful of um, the way it was done initially. Uh, Gower Champion's choreography, I would say 80% of that choreography still exists. He doesn't try to uh, reinvent the wheel, uh, which is maddening to a lot of us who have seen original productions of plays that are totally reinvented for what we consider to be no particularly good reason. So he did the same thing with, uh, with Forum. He also is somebody who uh, likes to surround himself with great comic talent. Uh, to give you some idea of uh, Laughter on the 23rd Floor, which was a comedy by Neil Simon about the writer's room for the Sid Caesar show, <clears throat> it was a company that was uh, included Nathan Lane, John Flattery, J.K. Simmons, Randy Graff, uh, Mark Lynn Baker. You know that you're... you're uh, performing with an A-team of actors when you work with Jerry Sachs. Obviously, we can't talk about Hello, Dolly without talking about the recently deceased Carol Channing. She passed away back in January of this year, and I heard the tour got to pay tribute to her after a performance. We did in San Diego, yes. Uh, Betty stepped out and, you know, mentioned to the crowd that Carol Channing was, of course, the person who immortalized the role. The first time I saw Hello, Dolly was in the 90s. They brought it back to New York uh, after an extended tour around the country. She was just remarkable. I mean, she was a great antic comedian. And uh, I remember it was a, a, a matinee, a Wednesday matinee. And I thought after the first 40 minutes, she's never going to get through this. And she was pacing herself. And uh, <laughs> by the middle of the play, she just, you know, became like the steamroller. And uh, there's a great speech at the end of uh, Hello, Dolly, about money, about spreading money around, which is very interesting. You know, it's a satire. Uh, it's a satire about the, the uh, constructive use of money and uh, how uh, money should not be everybody's top priority. And yet... You, you certainly need it. And she did that speech with 
greatest of integrity. I remember being so impressed. And then when uh, she came out, I jumped to my feet. And standing ovations have become obligatory in the theater because the theater is so expensive. I personally don't believe in that. And uh, perhaps I've given actors standing ovations maybe 10 times in, in my life. But that was one that I thought was totally well-deserved. Yeah, and had you ever met Carol Channing in your lifetime? I did, but, you know, at Sardis, and I think I, you know, told her how I jumped to my feet. And if I couldn't give a standing ovation to Carol Channing playing Yellow Dolly, who could I stand for? Mm -hmm. That's what I told her. Yes, and on a lighter note, you've also worked a lot with Nathan Lane. Um, Eight times. One of your collaborations with him was The Nance, which I got to see through the PBS broadcast. Uh, Yeah, it was a kind of a joyous experience. I thought it was a complete success. Uh, Again, uh, Nathan Lane is a person, you know, there are people who uh, are of his star uh, status who don't like surrounding themselves with uh, the best people in in the business. And Nathan realizes that the better the supporting cast uh, makes him look. Uh, you know, even better than uh, he is if he's just performing in solo. Uh, he's a great person, a dear friend, uh, a person with tremendous artistic courage. And not only have I done eight plays with Nathan Lane, but I also pretty much took over for him playing Max Bialystok and the producers. I took out the first national and then did it for six months on Broadway. And I also uh, played uh, Nathan Detroit in the uh, National Company of Guys and Dolls, which uh, he originated in the revival on Broadway in 1990. 1992. 92, excuse me. Mm-hmm. 92. If I remember correctly, I believe your character in the Nance often shouted, Niagara Falls! Oh, that's right. Yes, we did the Niagara Falls first. Yes, yes, we did that. Yeah, that was great, too, you know, because I was kind of raised on Abbott and Costello, the great, you know, anti-comedians who began their careers in, in vaudeville. And as I've previously mentioned, you've done quite a bit of screen work. You've worked with director Sidney Lumet twice. The first time was on Serpico starring Al Pacino. Yes, uh well, Sidney was a great director, and uh, one of the things that made him unique is when you when you do a movie, uh, you don't usually rehearse beforehand, or perhaps you rehearse for a few minutes just before you're going to do a take. Uh, Sidney, when he directs a movie, you rehearse it like a play. I remember when I did the verdict, we would rehearse the screenplay at 890, which was at the time the premier uh, rehearsal studio in New York. And there I was surrounded not only by the great Paul Newman, but uh, by uh, James Mason and Jack Warden and Charlotte Rampling. And uh, and I remember Sidney giving me a great direction in which I was playing a uh, very successful surgeon who uh, basically uh, tells Paul Newman that uh, he should sue uh, a hospital that uh, was run by the archdiocese because uh, they had screwed up an operation. I had about 90% of the dialogue in this scene, and Sidney had us walking around the rehearsal studio, and when we actually shot the film, it was a long tracking shot, which started in a, uh, a locker room and then went downstairs of a hospital, and then I finally got into a Jaguar and peeled off. It must have been about, about a four-minute, five-minute scene. And uh, I was so respectful of Paul Newman that while we were walking around the 
rehearsal studio, I kept looking at him and waiting for him. And Sidney kept saying to me, don't, don't do that. He's a, he's an alcoholic and you're a very successful surgeon. Just keep going. Just keep moving. Well, I had a difficult time doing that because I, you know, I wanted to be respectful of Paul Newman. And finally, Sidney took me aside and he said, listen, you are getting into this uh, Jaguar and you're going to drive across the Charles River in Boston. And the reason is you're having an affair with a, a 25 year old intern and you have two hours to be with her and then get back to the hospital for your next operation. And after he gave me that direction, I never looked at Paul Newman again. Well, I guess it must have been a pleasant experience working with Paul Newman himself. Yeah, he was he was great. I mean, it's a privilege. You know, I, 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 that's how you become a, a really good actor is you work with your betters. The first person that I worked with who was really uh, astonishingly brilliant is, was Henry Fonda. I did a production of The Time of Your Life uh, in 1972, I guess. We were the second play to play the Kennedy Center mm. uh, at the Eisenhower. It was an all-star production with Gloria Graham and Strother Martin and Victor French. You know, you, you watch people. You ask them questions. You incorporate that into your craft. Certainly watching Paul Newman, the thing that I remember about Paul was when finally the, the this long tracking shot was over, uh, Sidney Lumet said, uh, that's it. We're not going to do any close-ups. And I went, oh, God, I'm so glad we're not doing any close-up. And Paul Newman looked at me like I was crazy, and he said, you're kidding, aren't you? Because his whole life, you know, his whole movie career, uh, a, a star's movie career is close-ups. <laughs> you know? That's basically what uh, an audience is going to see on the screen, just his economy and his intelligence. And, and not only that, but I got to know him a bit. I mean, he lived talk about living a useful life he took his his star celebrity and uh he gave back to society in a way that uh, very few people do well yeah and i guess working with sydney Lament might have been helpful that yeah, i believe he worked in the theater himself well i worked with sydney's father uh borja lamet um, ah. Uh, my, the first job that I ever had was Fiddler on the Roof. I was Mendel the rabbi's son, and uh, Borja Lamet was uh, was the rabbi. Oh. And he, yeah, and he had uh, cataracts on his eyes. He was practically blind. So not only was my job to play Mendel the rabbi's son, but it was also to uh, hold on to him and get him off and on the turntable, which was part of, of Jerome Robbins' brilliant production of Fiddler on the Roof. And I remember I was there for about a week, and, you know, I'm telling you, he couldn't see anything. And uh, he whispered under uh, his breath, uh, he said, you're standing in my light. <laughs> Sidney was a great director, and the reason I told you that story about, you know, uh, him giving me motivation not to look at Paul Newman is a good director gives you active direction. They don't give you metaphorical direction. They don't say you're like a meteorite flying through space. An actor can't act that. But if you say you have two hours to be with somebody before you get back, that all of a sudden encourages uh, something in you because it's active. And all the good directors uh, give you that type of direction. And on TV, people may remember you as John Taylor on the first season of Benson. Uh, I hope not. Ugh, I hated that. Per I hated that year of my life. Oh. But yes, I was. Uh, I was on Benson for a year, and I 
screamed my way off. I thought, uh, I'm 31 years old or close to that, and I certainly do not want to be typecast in that type of a role. And I never looked back. I was very happy that I didn't have to do it. I left. I, I said, I don't want to come back. And, yeah. uh, and then they, you know, replaced me not with one actor, but with two actors, actually. It was a very unpleasant experience. Ah. Let's move on from Benson. Yeah. Okay, because you also had a recurring role in the now classic HBO series The Sopranos. Well, that was a very good experience. Yeah, uh, that uh, uh, James Gandolfini, uh, Gandolfini, was just the most generous person. Everybody loved him. And what was really nice about that television is, you know, they pretty much throw you into the hopper. They give you dialogue at the last minute, but not. Sopranos. The Sopranos was was filmed with the care of of making a motion picture every every week and a half. Everyone on the set was aware that it was probably going to be the greatest gig of their lives. There was a great sense of esprit de corps. They, you know, the fish uh, stinks or or is beautiful from the head. And James Gandolfini was the leader, and he was a wonderful person. And uh, it was a tragedy that he died so young. Yeah. And of course, you also did three episodes of NBC's short-lived Broadway-centric censored series Smash. Yeah, <laughs> I have to tell you, you know,、uh, I know that television has swallowed up the industry. I am—I consider myself a,、uh, an accomplished stage actor, which is something that I enjoy very, very much. I've done fifteen films.、Uh, maybe four of them were good that I'm really proud of. I, I never really felt. All that comfortable in front of a camera.、Uh, I remember seeing a, a, a wonderful documentary about、uh, Marcello Mastroianni, and he speaks about film acting and about revealing your soul. And、uh, you know, I've been doing this for about fifty-five years, and I, I've played a number of、uh, substantive roles in film and television, but. I never did it with enough regularity to really feel comfortable. It's a, a very, very different technique. Marlon Brando kind of said it best when、uh, he said that when you perform on the stage, the proscenium arch is what frames you, and when you do a film, because the camera is so sensitive, your skull is your proscenium arch. I must say that I never really felt comfortable. But and Smash was, you know. To pay the rent. <laughs> I'm sorry to say this to people. You know, who, I know television is such a huge part of people's lives, and it's pretty much you know taken over the entertainment industry. But、uh, it's it's not anything I ever really envisioned、uh, myself doing for very long. I always wanted to be a Broadway actor. I wanted to go from theater to theater, and and that's basically what I've succeeded in doing. In fact, I should point out that you know people say in film, well, the camera never lies, so it's kind of a lie detector.、Uh, yeah, and I, I I think that my work is good in film, but it, it was never anything that I really aspired to past my late twenties. You know, to to be a star、uh, takes a tremendous amount of effort and a tremendous amount of ambition. Because you keep having to、uh, perpetuate your singularity, and I remember I had a great acting teacher by the name of Stella Adler, and she said when I was a kid, you know, I went to study with her when I was 18 years old. She said, you know, what do you want to be, darling? Do you want to be an actor or do you want to be a star? And I thought, well, that's kind of silly because if you're a star, you get to play all the good parts. And it was about a decade later when I realized what she was talking about. To tell you the truth,、uh, 
I have to do a mantra before I go on the stage every night in which I remind myself that I am part of a collective whole, that my job is to tell the story of the play as best I can. If I go out there and say, what does Louis J. Stadlin get out of this? It brings up every neurotic impulse in me. And I have played many starring roles, and uh, I'm kind of proud. I remember when I did The Producers, you know, my name was uh, on the marquee above the title, which was something that I always aspired to. And then after seeing it, I thought, okay, I've done that. And I'm kind of proud that I am paid and treated like a star on occasion, but that I didn't dedicate myself to achieving that. Well, yeah. In fact, I remember reading a quote from Terrence Mann saying that movies can make you famous, TV can make you rich, theater can make you good. Hmm, that's good. Love Terry Mann and Charlotte D'Amboise, his wife. You know, the theater is just the the interaction with creative people can't be replicated in other situations so you go into a rehearsal room you create a character and and that's one of the beauties about being on the road is uh not only are you dealing with the different demographics of cities in which the audience responds differently from one city to the next but you're uh a traveling family. That's what I enjoy at this stage of my life. I enjoy the interaction as much as performing, actually. As we're in the middle of Tony season, I would like to talk to you about your experiences going through it since you have been nominated twice before. When you received your first nomination in 1974 for Candide, you were in pretty good company with the likes of Alfred Drake in Gigi, Joe Morton in Raisin, and the eventual winner, Christopher Plummer in Cierno. Yeah, I'll say. Uh, all three of them, you know, really great actors. And Christopher Plummer, I think, really in a, you know, a position by himself. I mean, he's, and especially now, he's probably about 87 years old and he's better now than he ever was. And Alfred Drake was uh, unparalleled as a musical comedy talent. And Joe Morton's a fabulous actor. What can I tell you uh, about that experience? I remember I was very young. I remember showing up at the Tonys thinking that the evening was going to be about me. And then I realized people here don't even know who I am. You know, it's a commercial for uh, the American theater. It's wonderful to be nominated for a month. You go to cocktail parties and people want to know what your opinions are. And so it's a, you know, it's an honor to be nominated. But I, I, I don't give it much credence anymore. I'd like to win one before I pass on to another uh, place. But again, it's, it's not a major priority anymore. I've won plenty of awards, and it's nice to put it on your mantle. But uh, I'll tell you a funny story. My son and my daughter, who are now 41 and 38, when they were kids, uh, they said when I started rehearsal for a funny thing happened on the way to the forum, they said, if, we get, if you get nominated for a Tony Award, uh, we want to be there. I said, well, I'm not going to get nominated for that role. But I did get nominated for the uh, Best Supporting Actor. I played Senex. And uh, I went to the theater, and they were not broadcasting that award live. So I showed up an hour and a half before, and uh, they announced that I didn't win. The award went to uh, a young man who was in Rent. Wilson Germain Heredia. Yeah, and uh, uh, then I had to sit there again and watch it 
watch myself lose again on tape in real time. And I was not in a very good mood. And I had paid $250 for both my daughter and my son to sit in the last row of the Majestic Theater. And my son, who was a teenager and had seen Rent a couple of times, uh, I was, you know, in a very, you know, a, a disgruntled state. And I said, you know, kids, first Broadway show, first equity show, and he wins a Tony Award, you know. And, um, and my son says to me, what do you know about it? Did you see his performance? And I said, no, I didn't. I said, but I heard some of the music. And uh, there was a, you know, another show 30 years before called Air, and that show had melodies, you know. And he said, well, what do you know about it? What do you know about it? I mean, that guy was great. That guy was fabulous. I said, well, if you thought he was so great, if you thought he was so fabulous, why don't you ask him to put you through college? <laughs> well, yeah, it's interesting. So your category in 96 was pre-recorded and only aired during the telecast because, you know, nowadays when categories are pre-recorded, it's usually the below-the-line categories before the show and only snippets of them are aired during the telecast. You know... I don't even watch the Tonys unless friends of mine are nominated. I watch when Nathan gets nominated, which is almost every year, um, or when I'm in a show and they throw a party. But I don't put a lot of uh, credence in uh, award shows. It's, you know, it's to publicize the theater, which is necessary. <clears throat> I guess fair enough. Though. No. However, I mean, I guess out of curiosity, if if the Tonys were to ever give you like a special lifetime achievement award or something like that, would you accept it? Uh, yeah, well, sure. I don't think that's going to happen. But yes, Alan Arkin, who was the director of the Sunshine Boys, said that if he ever won a, a Tony Award, that his speech was going to be, I have contempt for everything that this award means. And thank you. It's the happiest moment of my life. You know, you, you can uh, be a curmudgeon about awards, but obviously if you're going to be feted, it's, it's something that is life-affirming. So what do you plan on doing when you're done with the tour of Hello, Dolly? Well, I don't know. You know, an actor's life, especially a, a career that has gone on as, as long as I have, or a profession, you know, I've been, it's my profession as much as a career, you're a kind of a gypsy. One of the nice things about uh, growing older is you are competing with uh, fewer and fewer actors of your category. You start off, you're the youngest person, and then you... You have to keep reinventing yourself every 10 years. Uh, there's a couple of roles that I, I've been blessed. I mean, I've played almost every single, certainly musical comedy role that I've, I've aspired to. I haven't played Heinze in Pajama Game. That's rarely produced. And I haven't played Mayor Shin in The Music Man. You could, you know, drop uh, Scott Rudin a line there. And Jerry's uh, axe. I would like to do... I, I, I have a, a Willie Loman in me. I know that. I don't want to do it for too long a time because <clears throat> I don't know if I have the vitality to do that in a long-run situation. Well, yeah, even Philip Seymour Hoffman, who God rest his soul, he did for a few months, but I've read that part of his experience there is probably what led to his eventual demise. Well, he was, you know, he was a great, great actor, but he was also a heroin addict. So, you know, you take your chances. I'd like to play Sarah Bakoff in Uncle Vanya. 
I had a great experience in Ireland. I played Gregory Solomon in Arthur Miller's The Price. And now this was an award that I was very proud of. I won the uh, Irish Times Award, which is the Irish version of the Tony. I'm the only American actor to ever win that award. Yeah. So that, that was something that I really feel great about. In conclusion, what advice would you like to give to any aspiring young performers out there? Well, when you start... I think there's this impression that you have to make uh, inroads with everyone in the profession. I can tell you that the last half of uh, my professional career, I've worked pretty much with the same people over and over again, with uh, notable exceptions. But I've worked with Jerry Zachs for eight times. I've worked with Nathan Lane eight times. I've worked with Scott Rudin as a producer many times. When you're starting out, you should find a way in by associating yourself with one or two people who are viable in the business. Compliments will get you everywhere within the context of your own integrity. If you would write a letter to somebody who you really admire and say, I am a young person, I just graduated from the North Carolina School of the Arts or wherever, and I would do anything you know, just to assist you, I'll get coffee, uh, you know, that in a way is much more productive than just going to open calls and being a waiter. Yes, you have to survive economically, especially if you come to New York City or Los Angeles or Chicago, you know, the, where most of the work you know, is produced. And the other thing is, if you can be something else besides an actor, you should do that. If, if it's between being an actor or a veterinarian, be a veterinarian, because I think the people who have been able to survive uh, over the decades are people who, fortunately or unfortunately, realize that they really don't have a talent for doing anything else. They don't have other options. So casting directors are very, very powerful in this business, right? Mm -hmm. So... If somebody uh, right out of school would write a letter to a very viable casting director and say, I'll do anything, I'll, I would like to be a reader when you audition people, then all of a sudden you are showcasing your talent in front of people who can give you a job. So that's my advice. Do something that has to do with people who can eventually uh, employ you. Lewis, I thank you very much for devoting your time to this interview, and I hope you have a great week in Durham. I'm sure I will. My sister lives in Durham. Oh. I've been there many times, and uh, I love Durham. And I have to tell you before we go that when we did Laughter on the 23rd Floor, we tried out in Durham. Oh. Uh, uh, not at the theater we're going to play with Hello, Dolly. You're right, but because I don't believe theater. it was even opened yet. Yeah, Duke's Theatre, because Manny Eisenberg, the producer, was teaching, I believe, at Duke University. I remember having a, you know, really, really pleasant uh, few weeks in Durham uh, doing that. Well, yes, and once again, we all look forward to seeing you and Betty Buckley in Hello, Dolly. Pleasure talking to you, Jeff. Hey, pleasure talking to you, too, Louie. Thank you all for listening. If you like what you've heard here, I hope you keep following along for more podcasts. Feel free to rate and or review the show on iTunes, and I'll see you all later.